scripture reading today is from Matthew 27, 57 to chapter 28, verse 20. In the uh, blue pew Bible in front of you, it can be found on page 835. Again, it's Matthew 27, 57 through Matthew 28, 20. This is a reading of God's holy and inerrant word. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead." and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them saying, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Father, we ask for your spirit to come now 
And by the power of the resurrection, may you bring about new life, giving us new hearts and new eyes to see your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The one thing you have to understand about Christianity is that unlike most other religions, it is a faith founded on historical claims. You see, in the Christian faith, your salvation rests on the factuality of concrete people and events taking place within history. If they didn't really exist, if it didn't actually happen, if they're mere legends or fables or myths, then Christianity crumbles. It's not like other faiths. In most religions, you're supposed to follow the teachings of a revered leader which have been preserved for you for centuries in some holy book. In that sense, it's like Christianity. But the difference is, in most religions, you're not all that concerned with the historicity of their claims. You're more focused on the morality and the virtue of their teaching. In fact, most religious texts, most holy books, are ahistorical in nature, meaning that they're not filled with historical claims. Rather, they're mostly filled with proverbial statements and wise sayings. So, for example, consider Buddhism. If you took away all the miracles attributed to the first Buddha, to Siddhartha Gautama, if you conclude that they're just all legendary claims, they're not historical, it wouldn't be that much of a loss for the faith. Because the miracles of Buddha are not essential to the teachings of Buddha. In fact, you could even argue that you would get more Buddhists in our secular modern age if you were to detach Buddhist teachings from any Buddhist claims of the miraculous. But that won't work for Christianity. If you try to detach Christian teachings from Christian claims of historical yet miraculous events, then you will have destroyed the faith. Because in Christianity, you're not saved by following good teachings that have been passed down to you. No, you are saved by believing in good news. News about historical events and the work of historical persons taking place in history. So to deny historicity is to compromise the Christian faith. That's the very argument that the Apostle Paul makes regarding the claim of the resurrection in the 15th chapter of his first letter to the Corinthians. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then Christians of all people are most to be pitied. If the resurrection didn't actually happen, then we've put all our eggs into a basket that broke. We all staked everything on a man named Jesus and he fell short. That would be pitiful. So it's really to this historical claim of a resurrection that we have to turn our attention this Easter morning. We're going to consider the events in Matthew's gospel surrounding Jesus' burial and this claim of a resurrection. We're going to consider three things. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin, you'll see an outline. We're going to consider the plausibility of the resurrection. Second, the deniability of the resurrection. And third, the desirability of the resurrection. So let's begin with a question of plausibility, and by that I do mean the plausibility of the resurrection, but you know, at the same time, it's only fair to question the plausibility of the alternatives. 
I mean, there's definitely a burden of proof for those who claim a resurrection. I'll try to offer uh, some reasons in a moment. But, you know, there's also a burden of proof on those who don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Because there has to be some historical explanation for the birth of the church. Just think about it. Over 2,000 years ago, a new religious movement sprang up almost overnight. Hundreds of people claim to have witnessed a crucified man rise from the dead. Now, most of these eyewitnesses, they suffered and they died for making and maintaining this claim. How do you explain that? How do you explain how in a matter of months, thousands of strictly monotheistic Jews began worshiping a man, a man named Jesus? Or how did deeply entrenched ethnic and cultural walls come crashing down between Jew and Gentile, man and woman, slave and free? The New Testament church became a diverse, heterogeneous congregation of equals unlike anything existing in their day. How did that happen? In 300 years, this movement would become the official religion of the Roman Empire. And if you just fast forward all the way to today, by some estimates, Christianity makes up a third of the world's population. How do you explain it? If not for the resurrection, how do you explain the birth and perseverance of the church? What's the alternative? And then which is more plausible? Now, you know, when you're dealing with historical claims, you have to understand that plausibility is the criterion. How do we know that Caesar actually crossed the Rubicon or Washington crossed the Delaware? We weren't there. We didn't see it with our own eyes. It could have just been tall tales passed down, part of the mythos of these larger-than-life heroes in history. It could be. But I think that we're all pretty certain that those events historically occurred. But no one can claim a 100% certainty that an event took place in the distant past. That's too high of a standard for any historical claim. But plausibility, on the other hand, that, that, that's a fair thing. Are there plausible reasons for believing the resurrection historically occurred? That's a fair question. But on the flip side, how plausible are the alternatives if Jesus didn't rise? So let's, let's, let's apply this criterion of plausibility to today's text. Now, I think there's very little question that Jesus' tomb was empty. Because if this growing Christian movement was seen as a threat, if, if disciples are, are claiming their Lord has risen from the dead, then the authorities could have easily shut down the rumor of a resurrection by just simply producing a body. Open the tomb up and prove that Jesus is still dead. But of course they couldn't because there was no body in the tomb. Now, what's a plausible explanation for the empty tomb? Well, the authorities offer one. They claim that Jesus' disciples came by night during the Sabbath of all nights, and they stole his body. In chapter 28, verse 15, it's, it says that that story has been continually spread among the Jews all the way to the day of the writing of this gospel. That's been their explanation. The tomb was empty because the body was stolen. But you really have to assess the plausibility of that claim. 
because it assumes that his disciples were, first of all, in the right frame of mind after Jesus' death to concoct and to execute this brazen plan. And then not only that, it assumes that they were actually expecting and hoping for a resurrection. But if you just consider their reaction after his death, it becomes clear that none of his followers expected a resurrection because it didn't fit their categories. Even though Jesus predicted as much, they couldn't figure out what he meant by to be raised on the third day. They heard him say it, but they just didn't get it. Resurrection didn't fit their plausibility structure. It wasn't in their realm of possibilities. I mean, just look with me at Matthew 27, verse 57. Here we're introduced to Joseph of Arimathea. In the other Gospels, we're told that he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. In Luke's Gospel, he says that uh, Joseph opposed the decision by the council to arrest Jesus because he was actually one of Jesus' disciples. He believed that Jesus was the Christ. But now, now the one that he called the Christ is hanging naked and dead on a Roman cross. So what does a true believer in the Christ do? Did he sit on the edge of his seat, waiting for Jesus to revive, to climb himself down off that cross and to vindicate his glory? No. What his followers, what these true believers did was they just quietly offered to give their Lord a proper burial. And in so doing, Joseph showed reverence to Jesus, but he also showed his resignation to the fact that his Messiah was dead. By using his influence as a council member, he directly asked Pilate for the body. We're told in John's Gospel that Nicodemus, another council member, another follower of Jesus, worked together to remove him from the cross. Then they put Jesus in a newly cut tomb. It says in verse 60, they rolled a great stone over the entrance of that tomb. You have to understand that the, uh, the entrance of these tombs, they were typically built on an inclined ramp in the very front of it where a large disc-shaped stone was placed on top. And so it made it easy to, to roll that stone down the incline to cover the entrance, but it would have required many men to exert a lot, a lot of strength to roll it back up. Next we see Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. They're heading to the tomb early Sunday morning. The women arrive expecting to tend to a dead corpse. The other gospel writers say that they brought more spices to anoint Jesus' body, and they were wondering among themselves, oh man, how are we going to roll that stone up the incline all by ourselves? But Matthew tells us they don't have to worry about that because a great earthquake had struck in conjunction with an angel of the Lord who descended from heaven and rolled back the stone for the women. That wasn't you understand, to allow Jesus to leave the tomb. That was to allow the women to see inside the tomb and to realize that no one is there. They needed such a startling scene. They needed such compelling evidence because they weren't expecting an empty tomb. They were not expecting a resurrection. The irony is the only people expecting a resurrection, at least claims to a resurrection, were Jesus' opponents. They took his prediction of being raised on the third day more seriously than his own followers. Now, of course, they didn't actually believe he'd been resurrected, but the chief priests, they assumed that the disciples would try to steal Jesus' body and claim that he had been risen. 
Little did they know how little they had to worry about that because his followers had resigned themselves to the fact that their master was now dead. But the chief priests and the Pharisees were told they feared the disciples were plotting something, so they asked Pilate for soldiers to secure the site by sealing the stone, by posting guards, and ironically, the the authorities don't realize that their very actions only result in strengthening the case for the resurrection because now it's that much more unlikely that the disciples could have outwitted and overpowered armed guards in order to steal that body. Bottom line here, friends, this idea that disciples stole Jesus' body is implausible. But of course, you still need an explanation for the empty tomb. Why is it empty? What's the alternative? Well, there is an alternative. It's the explanation given by all four gospel accounts and their eyewitness testimony. Jesus has risen just as he said. Look with me at chapter 28, verse 5. When the two Marys arrived at the tomb, an angel was sitting on the rolled away stone and said to them, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. And after they saw the empty tomb, they left to tell the other disciples. And then... And then Jesus reveals himself to them in verse 9. Verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. They could now claim to have seen Jesus' face, to have touched his feet. And they're not the only ones. Multiple eyewitnesses claim to have seen Jesus after his crucifixion, walking on the road with them, eating and drinking with them allowing them to touch his nail-scarred hands. You know, when you put these two facts together, the empty tomb and these resurrection sightings, it just strengthens the case for the resurrection. If you only had the empty tomb but no sightings, then you could conclude with the authorities that maybe someone just stole the body. And if a rumor goes around that Jesus is actually risen, but there are no sightings, no one ever sees him again, then you could easily conclude that the resurrection is just some fabricated story. But if people are actually now claiming to have seen Jesus after his death, more than 500 claims were told according to 1 Corinthians 15, then the plausibility of a resurrection increases and it surpasses this theory that his body was stolen. The more plausible explanation for the emptiness of the tomb would be the eyewitness claims of a resurrection. But I know, I know some of you are probably thinking, okay, sure, it's plausible based on the evidence found in this narrative, but come on, this narrative was written by one of Jesus' followers. It's biased. It's all part of the conspiracy to fabricate this idea that Jesus was resurrected. But you have to understand, a resurrection did not fit the plausibility structure of not only the disciples, but of all the peoples in those days. If you were concocting a narrative to boost the credibility of your religious movement in the first century Greco-Roman world, it would make no sense at all to make a resurrection central to your religion. First century 
Gentiles considered the physical body to be a prison house of the soul. Their goal was to one day be rid of this body. So resurrection, teaching them that one day you will have a, a, a new body just like Jesus. Resurrection would have been considered undesirable. And for first century Jews, the idea of an individual resurrection not tied to the end of the world, the end of all things, it would have been unthinkable. And so if the gospel writers were simply fabricating a story that they hoped would be believed by Jews and Gentiles alike, why on earth would they include at the core of their message a claim that is philosophically undesirable for Gentiles and theologically unthinkable for Jews? The most plausible explanation for why all four Gospels would include the resurrection and why so many Jews and Gentiles would begin worshiping a resurrected Jesus and putting their hope and sharing in his resurrection is because it must have actually happened. So even though, of course, no one can claim with 100% certainty the historical claim of the resurrection, there are, friends, plausible reasons to believe that do outweigh the alternatives. But you know, no matter how credible the reasons to believe, we have to acknowledge that people will continue to deny the resurrection. And this leads to our second point, the deniability of the resurrection. The chief priests Think about them. They were confronted with an empty tomb that they could not deny. And they were presented with a plausible explanation in the resurrection. But in spite of the evidence, they found reasons to disbelieve that confirmed their presuppositions that Jesus is an imposter, a blasphemer, a liar, that he is not the Christ, he's not the Son of God. So we're told in chapter 28, verse 13, that they bribed the guards to say that they were asleep when the disciples came and stole the body, which, if you think about it, makes no sense, because how would you know who did it if you were asleep? But they're not trying to make sense here. But this kind of reaction is not limited to just Jesus' opponents. Did you see there, in chapter 28, verse 17, it says that some of Jesus' own disciples, likely referring to the larger group of followers, not just to the 11, it says in verse 17, they saw him, but some doubted. I think many of us probably think that we would totally believe if we could just see the risen Jesus with our own eyes, if I could just see, I would believe. But apparently, that's not the case. Seeing is not necessarily believing. There were some who had a resurrection sighting, and yet they found some reason to doubt it. Maybe I was just hallucinating. Maybe I didn't get enough sleep last night. You know, I must be seeing things. The point is, you can always find a reason not to believe in something. I was reading this book called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Hadid, and it makes this very point that people tend to find reasons to confirm a preconceived worldview, a preconceived plausibility structure. It's called, the, it's called a, a post hoc reasoning or confirmation bias. Maybe you've heard those terms. He uses this metaphor of a human writer sitting on top of an elephant. The writer, the human, represents our reasoning capacities, and the elephant represents our intuitions, our gut feelings, our emotions. And we often assume 
that our rational minds are in control and that they determine what's true to our hearts, to our, our gut. But Hadith shows that it's actually the other way around. The elephant leads and the rider follows. We gauge what is true based on our intuition, on our gut, and then we find post hoc reasons to confirm what we already believe. So let me just give you an example. What if tomorrow you read in the news the headline, archaeologists find the bones of Jesus. Experts are now claiming and they say that they can confirm that these are the remains of Jesus. I wonder, I wonder how many of you would actually believe it. If you're already a follower of Jesus, will you just sleep in next Sunday? Will you abandon the faith and accept now the explanation that the disciples must have stolen the body and hence the empty tomb? I highly doubt it. We would probably conclude that that's just clickbait. You know, that, that's just, you know, the liberal media bias, you know. You, you might think these so-called experts, they're just, you know, they're distorting the facts. They're just jumping the gun with inconclusive evidence. You have so many reasons not to believe that report. Well, if you're a committed Christian, you need to realize that's what it's like to present the facts of the resurrection to your non-believing friends and family. You can give them plausible reasons for the resurrection, but they'll always have reasons not to believe. In the same way you would react to a report about the bones of Jesus, your non-Christian friends will react the same way to a claim that Jesus is risen. The whole point is this. Doubt is never just a matter of the intellect. It's fundamentally a matter of the heart. The reasons people come up with not to believe in the resurrection are really only the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more underneath the surface in the heart. Doubting or just outright denying the resurrection doesn't just come from a lack of something in the mind. It's not like all they need are more reasons or better answers. Doubting or denying the resurrection really comes from the presence of something in the heart. In every human heart, there exists a deep emotional hesitancy, sometimes maybe even a hostility towards the claim that Jesus is alive and sitting on a throne to come back one day to judge the living and the dead. Because in every human heart, there is the desire to want to be our own king, to not have Jesus be that king. The resurrection is not some generalized feel-good message about the triumph of life over death or of good over evil. I mean, really, who would have any issue with that? No one would deny that. No, friends, you have to understand if the resurrection is true, then there are very direct and personal implications for each and every single one of us. If the resurrection is true, then the authority that Jesus claims to have is also true. In verse 18, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in the cosmos is found in Jesus. Now, if his bones are in some unmarked tomb somewhere waiting to one day be found, well, then you can just ignore verse 18. Jesus has no authority over your life 
over your future, over your eternity. You can just take whatever principles and lessons from his teaching that you find helpful and you find inspiring, and you can just ignore the rest. But if Jesus is alive today, if he reigns on high as the sovereign, risen Lord, then his authority is real. He has real authority over us. And he says in verse 19, he wants every single one of us from all nations to follow him, to be his disciples, to identify in his death and resurrection through baptism, and to, listen to this, to observe all of his commands, to submit to all of his teaching. Those are the implications of the resurrection that touch every single one of us. And so you see here, friends, the real question is not can you believe in the resurrection. The real question is do you want to believe in the resurrection? Because the reasons for the resurrection are there, but you really have to ask in your heart, do you want them to be true? If your intuition, if your gut, if your heart remains unchanged, then you will find a reason not to believe. The resurrection remains deniable until it becomes desirable. It remains deniable until it becomes desirable. And that leads to our last point, the desirability of the resurrection. And this is what I mean. The Christian is the person who not only agrees with the evidence for the resurrection, but desires the implications of the resurrection. It means you love what the resurrection means. You're going to be like Mary here in verse 8, who with fear and great joy obeys the call and runs to tell other people about the good news because you truly see and you believe in the goodness of this news that Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. Because Christ is risen this present life is no longer as good as it gets. Because Christ is risen, these present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Because Christ is risen, this mortal body prone to sickness and subject to decay will be made new and raised to immortality. Because Christ is risen, death has lost its sting it's no longer a dead end. It's become now a doorway to resurrection life. So friends, do you see the real question is, do you desire the resurrection in all that it means, all that it implies? I'm not asking if you believe the resurrection happened. I'm not asking if you think it's historical, if you think Jesus is alive today. Do you realize the devil believes all of that? The devil believes in the resurrection, and yet we know it's not enough to save him. Listen to David Platt describe for us an imaginary interview with the devil. Maybe this is like a baptism or a membership interview. He says, if you could ask the devil, do you believe the Bible is the word of God? He'd say yes. If you asked, do you believe Jesus is the son of God? He'd say yes. If you asked, do you believe Jesus died on the cross and rose again? He'd say yes. If you asked, do you believe Jesus is the only way of salvation? He would say yes. And if you asked him, would you commit to living a moral life, joining a church and actively serve in ministry? He would say yes. 
But if you ask the devil, will you repent of your sin and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord? He'll say, absolutely not. Because that's where the devil draws the line. He'll affirm all the reasons for the resurrection, but to the devil, it's the implications of the resurrection that are so distasteful and undesirable. And that's why he will refuse to accept Jesus as Lord. He won't submit to the authority of the risen king. So are your beliefs any different than the devil's? That's a hard question we have to ask ourselves. Because too many of us have grown up assuming the resurrection to be true. It's what we've always been taught. We've always believed that Jesus is alive. And then there are those of you who have more recently been introduced to the gospel, and now you've arrived at a place where you can confidently say that you believe in the resurrection. That's great. You've caught up with the devil. Now you need to surpass the beliefs of the devil. Your head agrees with the resurrection. Now your heart needs to desire it. If you want that kind of heart, friends, if you want to desire the resurrection, then you need to repent of your sin and surrender your life to Jesus as your sovereign Lord, as your risen King. Let me pray for you. Father, may you give this kind of faith to each and every one of us. Faith that surpasses that of even the devil. That our faith may not just be something in our heads, something that's logical, but may it be in our hearts. May we love the resurrection. And more so, may we love and obey the resurrected King. In his name we pray, amen.